Please be seated. I invite you, as you do, to open your Bible to Psalm 67. Before we read that, just a couple of opening comments here. I want to once again thank Pastor Barkley and the session here at Sovereign Grace for the privilege of being here with you this weekend and focusing our attention on the great purpose for all of human history, the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nations. And we get to celebrate that and focus our attention on that today. One little personal note that I will mention uh, this morning as well, you know, as we think about our own progress as pilgrims, there are times when God brings people into our lives at particular moments, when perhaps you are wading into the pool of despondency, and God brings people to encourage you along the way. That actually happened to me with your own pastor some years ago, and stepped on an airplane, was at a very dark time in our lives, and I was seated next to Dr. Bill Barkley. And we had a couple of hours together in the air, and the Lord used that particular conversation and subsequent prayers as a great blessing to me. It is indeed the case this morning that the Lord God through his word would call our attention to the great purpose for all of human history. He comes to us this morning to encourage us, to focus our hearts, our minds, and attention on that which cannot fail, which is his purpose. And as we read this text this morning, wherever you are on your progress as a pilgrim, I invite you to turn your attention to the word of the sovereign God of the universe who has spoken to his people in these words. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Oh God, many of us this morning need our hearts recalibrated, reignited, refueled with the power of your word and spirit to compel us to run the race before us with endurance. Oh God, by your mercy, by means of your spirit this morning, would you take your word and seal it on our hearts. Keep us from distraction. May we fix our eyes on the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Lord of the nations, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
from start to finish in Scripture, God calls us as his people to fix our eyes on him. There are so many things that are around us that would distract us, that draw our attention to the left or to the right. And we find ourselves tugged in varying ways to lose focus. But the God of Scripture is the one who governs all things. He is accomplishing His purpose on the stage of history. And the only way in which we will see this clearly is by having our mind's eye fixed on Him. Or to change that metaphor slightly, God calls us in His Word to see with our ears. That we are to attune our minds and our hearts and our lives upon Him so that what we believe is what He says. So that we trust Him and trust Him fully. God is the one who is absolutely clear and absolutely faithful that He will not not do what He has promised. He cannot not do what He has promised. He calls us to look to Him. He calls us to listen to Him. And in this particular text, He calls us to pray to Him. Over the course of this weekend, we began last night considering from Ephesians 1 a love like no other, a love that is actually the very grounds for mission. This morning, we are going to contemplate a prayer like no other, how God calls us as His people to pray. And then this evening, please come back because we are going to look at that wonderful text at the end of Matthew's Gospel that we know as the Great Commission and hear a calling that is like no other. And we will find out tonight what is so great about the Great Commission. This morning, we read from Psalm 67 that God has a good and holy end for the world. There's a purpose. There's a design. And it is a design that is focused on the the nations of the earth being glad and singing for joy. Dear ones, this morning we live in a context that is filled with purpose. We live in a moment on the stage of history in which God is accomplishing what he said that he would accomplish. I've never liked running. No, that's not right. I hate running. And one of, the, one of the, the only ways that I have learned to run successfully is if there's a ball involved. But just running for the sake of running is, I'm sorry, I don't get you people. I just don't, I don't understand. But what has, when I've been forced to run before, the only thing that has kept me going is that vision of the finish line. And that is indeed what we have in this text this morning. We have laid before us the whole purpose of history. Why do we press on now? We press on now because God is at work. This is what we call in theology, eschatology, that ultimate end of all things. And it is that eschatological outlook that is laid before us here. And what do we find in it? The redeeming purposes of God. This is why history exists. 
And we must catch that vision so that we can contend for that very vision. So I pray this morning that you will be arrested by and learn to rest in that purpose of God, that breathtaking, redemptive purpose of God. And in Psalm 67, we find ourselves in verse 1 with what I would describe as a stunning request. Let's listen to it again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Think about that prayer. Is that even a legitimate request? Arguably, how would we ever dare ask God to be gracious to us, to make his face to shine upon us, or to put it more colloquially, for God to smile at you, to smile at me? What an astonishing if not irreverent, prayer. How dare we go to the God in heaven who is holy, holy, holy and ask Him to smile on us who are stained, corrupt, and guilty in our sin. The whole of Scripture lays before us The astonishing nature, not only of of God's perseverance with us, but the ugliness, the, the hideousness of our sin. Just flip over in your Bible for a moment to Psalm 78. I won't read all of it. There are 72 verses there. But I do want you to catch a brief window into the way in which the people of God have responded to the grace of God. Verse 9, we'll read verses 9 through 20. Psalm 78, verse 9, The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet, they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart. By demanding the food they craved, they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? This psalm continues with this very theme. God blesses, he he, he cares for, he provides for his people. And we, with a stubborn resilience, respond in disobedience and in sin. So how is it that we could possibly come to this God and ask him to smile upon us? This gutsy prayer, dear ones, is not only a gutsy prayer, but it is a godly prayer. How do we know? Well, you have been at this, those of you who have been at this church for 
sometime will know the answer to that question very immediately. This comes directly from the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. This is a prayer that God gave his people to pray. In fact, if you, if you want to flip back and just look at it, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, you probably know it in your own hearts, but listen to this language again. The Lord is actually speaking to Moses And he tells them, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. How do the people of God know to pray this way? Because this is precisely how the God of heaven told us to pray. We In the 21st century, in this last decade, have developed in our culture the concept of cancellation, what has been known as the cancel culture. If somebody says something you don't like, if they do something you don't like, you use the weapon of social media to bring them down, to to cancel them, to defriend them, unfriend them, whatever, offriend them, whatever the term is. You bring them down by canceling them, and many of us have bemoaned the the illegitimacy of that. But let's not rush to conclusion so swiftly. There's something actually very right about cancel culture. Scripture says that we are accountable for every word that we say. We are responsible for every inclination of our hearts, that there is accountability there is culpability the problem with the cancel culture is that the one who is canceling you doesn't have the right to and the glorious news of the gospel is the one that actually does have the right to cancel you embraces you paul will use this language in colossians chapter 2 that we have a debt we've incurred a debt against this god and he by his grace By his redeeming grace, the one who has absolute right to cancel you, to condemn you, to cast you into the fiery pit of hell, says, I love you. I forgive you. Isn't it interesting in this psalm that is arguably the high point of missions in the entire Old Testament, if not the Bible as a whole, begins with a prayer of asking God to smile at us. There is, as we think about the call to gospel missions, as we think about the task of the mission of the church, it begins with us crying out to God for his smile. Asking God to smile on us, to pray boldly this gutsy and godly prayer. I ask you this morning, have you ever yourself personally prayed this boldly? Have you cried out to the God of heaven and said, oh God, would you smile at me? Yes, I'm a miserable sinner deserving of wrath, deserving of cancellation. And oh God of mercy, smile at me. Nothing exposes 
our right thinking along the pathway, along the race, along the pilgrim's progress. Nothing reveals our right thinking as much as the way in which we pray. Do you pray boldly for the embrace of God, the smile of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is a litmus test of our spiritual vitality, thinking God's thoughts after him, praying his word back to him, delighting in this word of promise. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. But note, it doesn't stop there. One of the most disappointing features of the Western church, even the Western Reformed church, is the way in which those of us who have been the recipients of great teaching, great theology, have been those vessels that have received the living water and we've let it stagnate. It's poured in, but it hasn't poured out. Think about this. When you are hiking along a trail somewhere and you see a pond that doesn't have an outlet, you smell it before you see it. And some of us, as Christian people in the West, we stink because we've allowed the the, the rich truths of God to come into us and we have become ponds rather than streams. We have become stagnant reservoirs rather than channels of grace. Look at verse 2. After crying out for the mercy of God, for the grace of God, for the smile of God, the psalmist takes us in verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Note that we who are the recipients of grace, we who have experienced the strong arm of God's salvation and the tender hand of His mercy, We who have been the recipients of His smile, that is given to us so that it might be given from us. The living waters of Jesus Christ, the great gospel that has been given to us, we, dear ones, are not to receive that gospel and hoard it, but we are to receive that gospel and give it. recent author that I would commend to you is a young man by the name of Pierce Hibbs. Pierce has been doing a lot of writing over the last five years. Very gifted writer. A book that came out a couple of years ago is entitled The Book of Giving. Now you may be thinking, all right, Barclay set you up this morning because you're going to be talking about philanthropy now, aren't you? Uh, Well, actually, this book of giving is not a book about giving of your wealth, but the giving nature of God. It's a book that actually surveys the way in which God, by his very nature, in his intra-Trinitarian relations, 
in the way in which the Father interacts with the Son, the Son with the Spirit, the Son with the Father, the Spirit with the Father, that there is the characteristic of generosity. There's an overflowing of giving between the persons of the Trinity. They are enduringly giving, eternally self-giving. There is a generosity, a magnanimity that is of the essence of the personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does this Gospel give us but fellowship with that God who relentlessly gives? We are brought into fellowship of the generosity of God. It is mind-bendingly unthinkable for us then to enter into the fellowship of a God who gives and become hoarders. We are brought into the fellowship of a generous God and our hearts thereby are to reflect His generosity. The grace that is given is the grace that is to be on display and on our lips. Grace ought not be driven into a cul-de-sac, but into the freeway of our hearts where we are on mission and in motion because of the grace that has been given us in Christ Jesus. So not only are we to pray boldly, but the psalmist here reminds us that we are to believe generously. Note that there is a coupling here of being a recipient and being a donor. That those of us who have received this grace, our prayer then, as we pray boldly, moves us to a believing of generosity that your way may be known on earth. There's a stewardship of entering into the fellowship of God by the grace of God, by the smile of God, whereby we share that smile with others. We share that love with others. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all the nations. Pray boldly and believe generously. This particular psalm is a psalm that is described as a menorah psalm. You will probably know the menorah from your Old Testament studies. I believe you're working through Exodus right now. And you you discover that the menorah, of course, has seven candles, one in the middle, This is called a menorah-styled psalm because it's seven verses. And these particular verses, all the lights on the outer edges point to the light that's in the center. And right at the center of this psalm, we find verses 3 through 5 with the pinnacle of this psalm being in verse 4. Look at verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And then verse 5 repeats verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
Verses 3 and 5 provide a bookend to that which is at the center of this psalm. And what is at the center of this psalm is at the center of God's purpose for the history of the universe. That's all. The goal of history is that the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. This language here lays out for us a stunning vision. As the psalm crescendos to its pinnacle, We find at the peak of this psalm, the peak of the purpose of God for history. And that is that the nations are glad and sing for joy. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 one more time with a little different focus. Just listen. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. Sing for joy for you. Judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You wonder who's the focus of this. At the core of human history is the design that by the grace that is given in the Son, Jesus Christ, and applied by His Spirit, that nations of the earth will marvel at the kindness of God and give Him praise, give Him glory, what the Reformers described as soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. But if you're an astute listener or reader, the second half of verse 4 might be a little disturbing. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. If we thought verse 1 was gutsy, to ask God and to delight in his judgment with equity sounds downright suicidal. How would we dare ask God to show us not just mercy, but that we would delight in His justice as a sinful people? Oh, we want justice for others, but we want mercy for ourselves. We want grace. One of the great themes of Old and New Testament is a God who navigates the complexities of the human heart, the complexities of your heart and of my heart. And we see, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, that in Jesus Christ, God becomes both just and justifier of the wicked. That is astonishing. What is that point? The point is this, that this God remains holy and just. He can do no else. For that's who He is. In His forgiveness, He does not turn a blind eye to your sin or to mine or to the sins of the nations. He has put on the very shoulders of His own Son on the cross the sins of His people. So this is a God who puts fear in the eyes of the unjust. 
but he wipes the tears from the eyes of the justified. This is a God who is delighting in forgiving forgiving his people because justice is met in Christ Jesus. Do you ever notice the language of 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us. No, it doesn't say that. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the gospel, in the work of God, in the gospel, in His beloved Son, there is reason to sing because the justice of God is met in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And for all that place their trust in Him, they will discover the songs of grace, the symphonies of mercy, and delight in a God who is both just and justifier of the wicked. God be praised. This psalm, by its language, drives dear ones right at our hearts. Because as we are called here to pray boldly, we are called here to believe generously, we are also in verses 3 through 5 called to desire rightly. What is it that you truly long for? As you wake up each morning and you look yourself in the mirror, do you find your mind and your heart consumed with this purpose? This glorious end that your longing is that the nations know this Jesus. Your longing is that your neighbor knows this Jesus. Your longing is that the folks in Charlotte, North Carolina, whether they are Duke Blue Devils or Carolina Tar Heels, that they will enjoy the smiling face of God in Christ. Do you desire rightly? Do you enjoy what Gerhardus Voss describes as a sympathetic absorption in the mind and heart of God? Do you see what's laid before us here? This is the heart of the triune God. This is the end for which the universe is created, that the nations be glad and sing for joy in the righteousness and grace that is found Alone in this God. This is God's goal for history. Is it yours? Is it mine? Do we desire what God desires? This psalm reveals then the heart of God and draws us into his purposes for the nations and everything else. Everything else, every relationship, every investment, every priority is only aligned correctly when your and my heart aligns with the heart of God. Do you desire rightly, even when you pray boldly? Do you believe generously? Is your heart consumed with the purpose of God. To put it a little differently, 
What is it when you look in the mirror in the morning that comes to mind? Are you looking for comfort? Are you looking for political stability? Are you looking for economic prosperity? Are you looking for rest? Are you looking for retirement? What makes your adrenaline rush? The psalm calls us afresh this morning to have our adrenaline recalibrated according to the desires of God that the nations are glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The psalm changes its mood in verse 6. If you'll note that what we have had in these first five verses is in a a mood of request. It's what we call in the Hebrew language the jussive. And, And with that particular orientation of asking, we find a decisive pivot in verse 6, where the mood moves from a request, a a petition, a longing, to an assertion, to a statement of this is the way it is. Look at this language. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. Now note we return here to the blessing of God, just like we began in verse 1. But where verse 1 is a, is a prayer for that blessing, in verse 6 we have a declaration of that blessing. The language here is language of harvest. Just think about the experience of these old covenant saints. When they weren't wandering in the wilderness after they got settled in the promised land and took to taking care of the land, they planted seed. And God provided food for them year upon year, month, I'm sorry, season upon season, year upon year, decade upon decade. God showed that He is the one that provides the harvest. This metaphor quickly drives us to the harvest of which Paul speaks, for example, in Romans 8 or 1 Corinthians 15. That harvest of the people of God who will be united on that last day with Jesus Christ in glorified, resurrected bodies. This is an image. The the whole harvest cycle is a manifestation that, yes, we we will plant the seed, we will sow the seed, but God provides the growth. And note the indicative, the assertion. The earth has yielded its increase. Look, dear ones, at the past. God has provided over and over again. Then it says, God our God shall bless us. That is a word of promise. And as I began this morning and now wrap up, I remind you that God cannot not do what he says. And just as he has demonstrated his faithfulness in agriculture and provision that Jews and Gentiles alike enjoy, as Acts 14 makes, point, it makes a point to show us, that this God is a God who will bring forth this harvest. 
and he will delight over his people. As the prophet Zephaniah puts it, God sings over his people. Do you realize that? Not only do the nations rejoice, not only do the nations sing for joy, but God sings for joy over the nations. (laughs) The beauty of this is that God says this will happen. Verse 7, God shall bless us. And then we return once again to that prayer, let all the ends of the earth fear him. What is it, dear ones, this morning in which you rest? Note this flow of this psalm. It begins with a cry to pray boldly. It moves to a a prayer that we would believe generously and then desire rightly. And then the psalm ends with this call to rest securely. To rest securely in the purpose of God realized on the stage of human history. To delight in the saving power of God to the nations. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We suffer with social media and news networks that if I had to summarize, they truly teach us to hate our neighbors. Whatever side of the political spectrum that you find yourself, I remind you that the nations are not to be treated as any other thing than the object of our prayers. While, as we heard from Dan this morning in that wonderful presentation, that God is at work around the world in massive countries like the country of China, Our political pundits would teach us to hate President Xi. Would teach us to see the Chinese as our enemies. Much like we were taught after 9-11 to treat Muslims as our enemies. God calls us to pray. God calls us to long that those that are outside of fellowship with him, who are not yet into the circle of generosity, who have not yet experienced the smile of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ by the outpoured spirit, that we pray that the nations are glad and sing for joy. Do you find your heart this morning as you think about the Muslims in your neighborhood or around the world? Do you find your heart fearing or hating? Or do you find your heart longing and praying that they would know the Jesus that you know? Pray boldly. Believe generously. Desire rightly and rest securely because the purposes of God will be met. As we conclude this morning, no doubt, and I've spoken with some of you even to get a little window into your lives over this last 24 hours, there is suffering anywhere, everywhere, 
You have your own suffering and your own misery. What if your current misery was part of the instrumentality that God uses to bring the nations to sing? To bring the nations to be glad? The Apostle Peter reminds us that the delay in the return of Jesus Christ and the suffering that goes on during that period is actually the instrument that God uses in His patience to draw the people from the nations to Himself. Are you willing to walk through that suffering? To be on that pilgrim's progress and enduring the suffering of now with a vision to the glories to come and allowing that vision, that promise to govern your now in such a way that you delight in being uncomfortable. So that those who do not yet know Christ can be brought in to the household of faith. What if your and my passion for comfort was replaced by a zeal for the nations to sing? One of the founders of the Presbyterian Church in America who just recently went home to be with the Lord, was an ardent evangelist. His name was Frank Barker. He planted what we now know as Briarwood Presbyterian Church, where currently Harry Reeder is pastor. Dr. Barker was a man who was known for passionate evangelism. There are untold thousands, literally, that know Christ today because of Frank's stubbornness about this vision. He was also a man who didn't mince words about priorities. And he had a congregation member who came up to him one afternoon and said, Pastor Barker, I've got a question to ask you. I have just bought a boat. What do you think I should name my boat? Now, just brief excursus. Don't ask your pastor that question. (laughs) You may have a boat, but don't ask Dr. Barkley what you should name your boat. Just don't do that. But Dr. Barker didn't mince words. And he said, here's what you should name your boat. One less missionary sent. Let that sink in for a minute. Sink in for a minute. My word here is not to tell you don't own a boat. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. What I am saying to you is allow your heart's desires. Yield your heart's desires to the desires of the God of heaven. For this, as we will see tonight, this this mission for the nations to sing and, and to be glad, this is a mission that cannot fail. Wouldn't you like to align your heart, the purpose of your life, day in and day out, on a mission that cannot fail? Pray boldly, believe generously, desire rightly, and rest securely. Let all the ends of the earth Fear him. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word and how it does indeed recalibrate our hearts. It does reveal 
ways in which we don't pray boldly and ways we don't believe generously, ways in which we don't desire rightly. But, oh God, would you, this morning, in the hearts of these, your dear people, your sons and daughters, whom you've adopted by grace through faith, oh God, would you grant all of us the desires of your heart. Oh God, may we as your people in this nation at this moment have our hearts shaped by you, O God, that we would have zeal for the nations until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and claims us each one and calls us to himself. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.